You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Thursday, June 2nd edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. This week, we are science-focused, and I'm very excited to welcome two guests to my show, uh, Dr. Shannon Valley from the United States Geological Survey. She's a postdoctoral scholar at Woods Hole Oceanographic, Oceanographic Institution. Shannon, so nice of you to join us. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. I should clarify, I'm technically employed by Woods Hole, but I am a fellow in partnership with USGS, so. Perfect, I appreciate that. Lots of titles in there. (laughs) And then Dr. David Ho, who's a professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. David, so kind of you to join us, thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, Which island is that on at the University of Hawaii? It's on Oahu. Okay. Nice. I'm heading to Hawaii in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. And then finally, um, my name is Radhika Moldavkar. As you all know, I lead the supply and methodology group at Nori. So um, as people who listen to this podcast regularly know that uh, Ocean CDR is attracting attention from all corners of the climate community, we have focused in recent episodes on the global policy developments and Ocean CDR regulation and research with Will Burns and some of the business challenges in the space with two startups who were XPRIZE winners and that are working to develop commercial methods to remove carbon dioxide from the ocean. So today, we're going to complete the trilogy a little bit around uh, CDR, ocean CDR, to the extent we can, with lo- a look at the, some of the recent science on the topic, focusing on the outstanding scientific questions that will need to be answered before ocean CDR can be deployed safely and effectively, um, a topic that will talked about from a policy perspective. First, we're gonna look at a 2021 paper from D.A. Siegel, uh, which assesses how long carbon dioxide can be stored in seawater will remain sequestered in the ocean based on the given location and depth of the process. Then we'll look at a perspective piece from Nature, Ecology and Evolution from Boyd, Bach, and Hurd et al. Uh, the researchers suggest that some possible unintended ecological consequences of proposed large-scale kelp planning, such as wide strait widespread drift to kelp into new ecosystems and the spread of invasive species. The authors outlined um, potential research metrics, which should be established to evaluate the safety of ocean afforestation. So let's jump into that first paper, which was assessing the sequestration timescales of some ocean-based carbon dioxide reduction strategies. Shannon, I'd love to start with you. Um, the piece found that carbon dioxide discharged into deeper water under a thousand meters will remain in the ocean for much longer than shallow water sequestration, such as increasing um, ocean ecosystem productivity and will have a shorter climate effect. Can you just basically explain what that means and um, why it is and how that relates to CDR? Big question probably, but I'm sure you can (laughs) tackle it. Sure. So I, I guess I would want to kind of step back and, and talk about, you know, why why ocean depth should matter at all. I guess it seems like 
the ocean is all water and so it should all be kind of the same thing but but actually the ocean is really stratified into vertical layers um, based on their densities so like if you're thinking about kind of different layers of salad dressing or if you're you know going back to your different colors of liquid that are stacked on top of each other you know that you may have seen in in different science classes over your lifetime you can understand that the different density layers mean that the, unless you shake kind of things up that there's the different properties of those different layers are not going to necessarily mix and that matters for carbon as well so you have the surface layer of the ocean that's interacting constantly with the atmosphere and with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you have an upper ocean that may be going down to about 1500 meters or so and then below that you have the deep ocean and all of these layers are circulating at different rates and they've you know there's a whole global circulation scheme of um of different ocean currents and different and different ocean layers um and all of these different properties nutrients um dissolved gases and so on that are going along with it and basically in short the deeper ocean is circulation circulating on much longer time scales and what that means effectively for carbon is that the carbon in that deeper ocean layer is not interacting, it's not exposed to the, the atmosphere um, for many centuries or, or thousands of years. And that's kind of dependent on um, which basin you're talking about. If you're talking about injecting carbon into a, a different, um, in the Atlantic versus Pacific, for example, um, the paper found that, um, unsurprisingly, that the uh, deep ocean um, that carbon injected into the deep ocean in the Pacific has takes much longer to interface with the atmosphere, which is when it can release that carbon that was initially injected. So uh, just to make sure that I understand it, there's stratification in the ocean, like you mentioned, the deeper, the less likely to interact, obviously, with the atmosphere and the longer it takes to come back. But there's also an interplay with where in the ocean you are. So the Pacific and the Atlantic act a little bit differently or a lot differently potentially. And can you just elaborate about why that is, what makes them different and, and how you identify potentially a good place for deep uh, CDR, for ocean CDR? Yeah, so um, the Atlantic and the Pacific have di different kind of overturning regimes. So when we say overturning, we're talking about oceanography, we're talking about water that is, um, that's been at the surface that again is exchanging with the atmosphere. And when it increases in density because it's saltier and colder, for example, then it draw, it's drawn down into the interior ocean and into depth. And eventually that water is also gonna be, it's displacing other water somewhere, it has to go somewhere. And so it will have to then come back up to the surface over time. And that happens in kind of different upwelling regions. And um, based on a lot of different factors that I won't go into here, but um, the Atlantic has a more robust overturning regime than the Pacific does. Um, and so that's some of the basin, that's the, the, the behind some of the different findings that you see the different basins as that's reported in the paper. Thank you, Shannon. That was very, very helpful. Uh, so David, the timescales of ocean CDR um, being, are being examined range from like decades to thousands of years. Uh, I myself have talked to various startups who claim, you know, thousands of years up to millions of years. Um, 
So if a given CDR proposal is intended to test how long it could sequester carbon dioxide in the ocean, how, well, first, how do we vet it and how do you verify it and moder and measure it? Like, it just seems very overwhelming, but I would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so before I answer that question, I think it's important to clarify something about this paper and, and what we're talking about when we talk about CO2 storage in, in the ocean. So this paper specifically addresses the question of if you inject CO2 at various depths of the ocean, how long will that CO2 stay there? And that question has some relevance for some of the ocean CDR methods like growing kelp or, or, um, or enhancing alkalinity in, in the sense that if you, if you can get the carbon that then gets sequestered by those techniques to those depths, um, the carbon will stay, stay sequestered for that long. But really, this is a two-step process, right? When you grow kelp or when you enhance alkalinity, what you're doing is you're removing CO2 from the surface water. And then the second step is once you create that deficit, then you draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's your CDR. It's not the uptake from the ocean that's the CDR, right? So, so this paper really, you know, it's not directly relevant to that question of how long does atmospheric CO2 get sequestered, unless you're talking about something like, you know, you're doing, doing um, direct air capture of CO2 on land, and then you somehow pump it into the ocean at certain depths, right? And I think that's really, really important to know. So, you know, none, none of the answers given in this paper, you know, refers to how much of the kelp derived or alkalinity derived CDR stays sequestered from the atmosphere. Okay. I have a, a follow-up question before we go to my original question again, which yes. is, so you said that, um, it's the deficit that's created that's the CDR piece. That's Has the potential. It, potential CDR piece. Has it even been shown that the that, that one happens? And to the ratio, is it like uh, for every one ton uh, that has been, that there's a deficit that one ton is drawn down from the atmosphere? Do we know that even yet? we know that it's definitely not 100%. So we, we have a student who just presented a paper at the recent uh, EGU meeting in Vienna, where she showed that the global average for kelp, let's say if you consider nutrient limitations, is about 40%. And it varies, right? In some area, actually growing kelp releases CO2 into the atmosphere. So so it'd be bad to do um, kelp-based CDR in those areas. And then there are some areas that, that are quite efficient. You know, you go up to maybe 70% or more. Um, so yeah, it, it really matters where, where you are. So 
how, how did she do that? She, and that gets to the, the question that you originally asked is, I think we have to use models because the timescale of these processes are so long that there's no way for us to go out there and measure. But what we need to do is make measurements to calibrate and validate models. And then we, we use models of different complexity, different resolutions to really look at the different areas of the ocean to figure out you know, this, this exact thing, you know, how, how much CO2 would get taken up um, by one of these techniques and you know, what are the side effects, what, what's, what's the efficiency and, and how long does it stay sequestered? Um, I'm curious, Shannon, from your perspective, and is that modeling is what we, what my company Nori does for soil, uh, for soil carbon removal, but it is a bit controversial because people feel like it's not the gold standard, which is soil sampling and testing. Some people feel that way. Um, do, do, will, do you think models will be more accepted within the scientific community of the, you know, or studying oceans than they sometimes are within the scientific community around soil sampling or soil CDR? Um, I think modeling in general is already well accepted in the oceanographic community as a way of, of kind of, as David was saying, understanding changes over longer timescales um, than what we could um, just measure experimentally or what we could observe experimentally. Um, what the question of like, what is realistic or not, um, we're talking about just huge geographic space and then huge temporal space. And um, I think the problem with thinking about these things with climate change is that, right, we're not, um, we're constantly making a, we're, we're in an ongoing experiment with perturbations to this system. And so if you wanna kind of forecast and try to understand how some other kind of tweak or some other kind of activities when you impact things, you really need to do it through modeling. And I think, I mean, that's not the only way that you can kind of answer some of the questions that we need to, to answer to ensure that the work that we're doing in CDR is um, both effective and we're doing the least harm um, to ecosystems and so on. But it's, it's a really important and powerful tool. And it's powerful also because you can start to to mess around with, with issues of scale. That is something that came up, I think, with um, at least one of the papers um, that we're talking about. Um, the, the power with, and I'm sure David has more to say on this, but the power with models is that you can kind of, you can play around with the knobs in the way that you can in the real world. And you can make observations and understand exactly what you've kind of, at least what you've changed initially and see what happens with the system. Um, and then you can kind of push things to kind of their natural limit. The other way of that I've done it in my research is working in paleoceanographic studies is kind of looking at the earth system and other types of natural experience, natural experiments of extremes, like looking at changes from glacial periods to now and periods when our climate was vastly different from now. Um, but models are a way that you can kind of get at that at real time and run those over periods of, you know, weeks to months rather than waiting for years to try to understand what kind of intervention would have 
what kind of impact an intervention would have on an ecosystem. Well, that leads me into my next question about the, this paper or just generically about ocean CDR, right? I think some advocates have said that even if there are other ecosystem consequences, these techniques could well be worth it because you know the effects on the ocean from climate change may be worse or will be worse than the technique would be, the CDR technique would be. So I'm curious what you both think about that question and um, you know, how do you go about in your own mind balancing the risks and benefits of CDR technologies as opposed to the impacts of climate change on the ocean? And I'll start with you, David, and then I'll go to you, Shannon. Okay, so, I, so I'm a scientist and I sort of feel like this isn't a decision for scientists to make, right? I mean, there, there needs to be other stakeholders that, that decide these things. But when, when I personally think about it, you know, I, I would want to know what are the effects of, what are the side effects of the CDR techniques and how many people are affected and, you know, what kinds of ecosystems are affected. Um, and, and those things might be related, right? Like if you, if you damage an ecosystem, then you also affect people. And I'd like to know what is the duration of, of these effects, et cetera. Um, so those are the things that I think about, but you know, these are very sort of theoretical, I guess. And, and but I think it's, it sh should not be a, a decision that's left for just scientists, certainly. Shannon, what do you think? How do you how do you approach this problem, either, either professionally or personally? Yeah, I I totally agree that this is not um, this is not a, a decision for kind of one group of thinkers to be making over another's. Um, I think it's a really important question, and again, you know, change is a constant in the Earth system. So when you talk about trying to avoid kind of irreparable harm to ecosystems and so on, it's like irreparable. Um, irreparable over what timescales, right? So what's relevant to us as humans, as conscious beings on this planet? So, you know, that may be the limits of our thought and consideration of that may be generational or, you know, societal eras or, or you know, civilizational periods at most, right? So we have to decide kind of what we value from the ocean. What are the things that we want to protect most? So is that you know, are these coral ecosystems, are these macro fauna impacts that come downstream, are the fisheries that directly impact people's livelihoods and their well-being? Um, and just even, you know, I'm involved with this group called the Inland Ocean Coalition out in Colorado. It's nationwide, but we talk a lot about kind of the spiritual benefits of the ocean to people. But, you know, we have to decide, I think, my, my personal view is to, when thinking of these strategies, I'd like to say, okay, first, do no harm, which is to first do no more additional change that would be harmful to these ecosystems that we care about. But if that's not possible, then we need to understand kind of what are what are the risks involved fully. And then also, you know, what do we want to preserve? What is the priority there? And the the we is the big question, right? So who is that when we're talking about the global commons of the ocean? And that's a big question for climate change overall. Um, but I think that we have kind of the 
international infrastructure to kind of talk about these things. We talk about climate research and mitigation activities more broadly, but for oceans, um, I think this is still something relatively new. So to David's point about bringing in more stakeholders, stakeholders is just a fancy word for different groups of people with different ideas, right? Different priorities. So it's tough, but I think we're, we're starting to, to approach that now. <laughs> That's right. Stakeholder is just a fancy word. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the other paper we were going to discuss, which is the potential negative effects of ocean afforestation on offshore ecosystems. I mean, I think, David, you kind of already touched on this a little bit, but, you know, um, planting large kelp arrays obviously will have environmental impacts in the ocean. So what are some of the ways that these kelp forests could affect surrounding ecosystems in both a positive and a negative way? In terms of positive, I mean, if we're talking about doing this at scale, like gigaton scale, I, I'm not sure, you know, that we, we might have benefits for, for carbon removal if, if that comes to fruition. But in terms of like other benefits, like kelp, you know, we think of kelp forests, like, you know, as a place where other organisms can thrive, you know, like you can imagine this, this makes sense in certain sort of offshore regions, but if the entire ocean was like that, I'm not sure we would say, well, that's beneficial, right? So, so it's really in the scaling and, and, they don't make this point in, in the paper, but they do make the point that it's when you scale things that you see these effects. Um, and so, you know, they talked about um, like competition between macroalgae and microalgae, like chemical comp um, competition. They talk about like things that grow in in uh, coastal areas getting transported offshore, like microbial communities and, and things like this. So you're talking about invasive species, right? And, and then um, one of the, the big things that our, our student found is that when you consider nutrient removal, so you, you take away the nutrients from the microalgae, then, then maybe the microalgae isn't growing and, and the things that feed on the microalgae won't grow, right? So you're affecting higher trophic levels as well. So maybe you'll have less fish because maybe fish does not eat kelp. Um, and then, you know, there are other, other effects like releasing organic, uh, volatile organic carbon or compounds to the atmosphere or, um, dissolve organic carbon from macroalgae, you know, a lot, a lot of that going in, into the water and how does that affect the microbial community again. Um, and then there's, there's a paper by, by um, the same group of authors um, about sargassum where they pointed out that this could affect the albedo of the ocean. But also, you know, people have, have um, in this paper, they also mention it. Uh, the the light penetration into the water, and that would affect you know uh, productivity as well and other organisms. So you know when, when you do it at, at project scale, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But then 
you know, we, we have to look at what does it mean to, to do this at a gigaton scale? Like every year, it's not just once, right? And, and I think this is where the, uh, I guess the power of this paper is, is really pointing out like, hey, you know, when you scale things, that's when, you know, a lot of these problems emerge. That was really a good good distinction, David, because I think you're right. Oftentimes right now, even though we're talking about gigatons, we're only looking at small projects that are very narrowly focused and it is hard to extrapolate what it means. And so these papers are really important in helping us constantly bring our focus back a little broader about what we are doing. Um, Shannon, can you tell us what the researchers proposed for measuring the ecological effects of ocean afforestation? And what you thought of this approach, um, especially given in light of your, you know, work when you are uh, identifying projects for Stripe of Thine work or for Stripe, sorry, and working with them. Um, yeah, so I think in terms of at least when they talk about kind of the metrics for testing and so on, I kind of liked their. I definitely support their approach of kind of looking at different ways to capture kind of what's going on in these ecosystems. So again, the modeling side of things, which allows you to turn the dials up and kind of scale up as much as you, you want to hypothetically. Um, but understanding that those models, for example, could have assumptions about how um, biogeochemistry is going to work in the real ocean that may not bear out in practice. So therefore, you also need kind of laboratory experiments and field um, engagement as well um, to try to see to try to see what those kind of unknown unknowns are and see how different systems interact um, in the system in different ways. Um, so I definitely think kind of that that multi-pronged approach of the modeling lab and field work is, is definitely all necessary. So I want to um, transition to our last topic of the day, which is kind of talking about ocean CDR and a just transition. I mean, we've had, talked about it a little bit on the, throughout the show, but um, Shannon, as I mentioned earlier, you you have evaluated ocean CDR projects for Stipe. You obviously have studied blue carbon ecosystems. That's your expertise. Um, what has that work taught you about when you assess these kind of proposals? in the ability of ocean CDR to be scaled up and how you balance what you talked about, like the spiritual importance of these, of the ocean to particularly shore, onshore, you know, communities versus the impact that CDR could have to their spiritual use of the ocean. Yeah, those are truly questions. Um, I think, First off, I think from my experience and kind of reviewing applications for demonstration projects is that um, demonstration is really the key word there. Um, I don't think ocean CDR is ready for scaling up as we're at now. Um, there's a lot of more analysis that we need to do and a lot of risk um, that we need to understand better. It doesn't mean that we don't need to explore and that we need to, I'm totally supportive of an all hands on deck approach to tackling the climate crisis. It just means that we need to be clear and intentional about um, what we're saying when we're offering purchases for 
carbon removal. And in the ocean space, I think we're offering experimentation, demonstrations, and, and opportunities for more analysis and more, um, more information on where to go. Um, I definitely feel like there's a lot of well-intentioned folks out there who may have, um, some groups may have a kind of a shallower understanding of um, kind of ocean physics and, and, and kind of how the ecosystems work. And, and that's totally fair. And I think some of that's on us, honestly, in the scientific community. I think there has been kind of a long standing feeling that, you know, we're scientists, we just do the research, we get the data and what you do with it is kind of your business and we don't, don't weigh in. And I think that that attitude is, is starting to change and I think it needs to change. Um, I think big oceanographic research groups and institutions are starting to really understand the need to be involved at the kind of beginning stage in discussions with um, different companies, different actors in these spaces. And that means maybe talk, changing a little bit about how we communicate our science and the spaces in which we show up to talk about our science, even how we develop our research programs or you know how, uh, how we go for, for different um, funding for, for kind of more applied projects that will help serve this space. Because again, it is really an all hands on deck problem. Um, so yeah, I think the norms need to change kind of in our field and they are changing um, in terms of, again, to bring back the stakeholders, get everybody in the same room and talking. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I really adjust the, the spiritual side of that, but I guess um, <laughs> that's just some of my kind of thoughts on the, where science can, can help um, keep, pace with um, where um, different actors are trying to go in terms of these projects. That's okay. You didn't, couldn't answer that question. It was sort of a trick question. I, I always am asking it because <laughs> I want someone to give me an easy answer, but I think the bottom line is it's not easy. It's always about the trade-offs. Um, so David, you talked on, on your Twitter handle about the advantages of reducing emissions faster than, re than relying on CDR. Um, so from for the perspective of scientific research, how would you like to see resources directed towards evaluating CDR? Um, you know, would you, should we continue to only focus or mainly focus on maintaining existing research on things like emission reductions and ecosystem protection, or is there a different way that you would allocate the rather small research dollars that are out there? I'm not sure if we need to um, have more research into emission reduction and protecting ecosystems. Um, we, we know that those things should be done, right? So I, I don't think it's a competition between, you, you know, in terms of financial resources between decarbonization and and CDR, it's it's really um, maybe our, our tension, right? Like us thinking that hey, CDR is going to take care of atmospheric CO two, so we don't have to worry about you know our continued emissions, and that's that's where I that's where you know I guess my I, in, I uh, tweeted initially that 
I, I think you're referring to some tweet where I say, you know, it's much easier to reduce emissions than than to, you know, remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And I, I think that's very true. Like if you look at any of these examples that that I've tweeted, it's just the scale is massive. And, and I don't think people really think about that until, until you really go through the calculations to see whether it's really possible to do these things, right? To give you an example, I talked about kelp. And you know, not, not all the, the potential companies out there talk about harvesting kelp, but some do. And that's, that's the best way to do um, one part of MRV, one part of the you know, monitor, monitoring, reporting and verification is to just remove the kelp from the ocean, right? Because if you're waiting for it to sink, then you don't know how much sinks, you know, where it goes and so on. And that's where that, that initial Dave Siegel paper might come in. But, but, um, but let's say if you harvest the kelp, if we want to remove one gigaton of CO2 from the ocean, not from the atmosphere, right? from the ocean. Um, and you know, there's a dry weight to wet weight, weight ratio of about 14%. And then the carbon content of dry kelp is about 30%. So if you want to remove one gigaton of CO2, it means removing six, six and a half gigatons of kelp. And what is six and a half gigatons of kelp? That's almost 70, 70 times more weight than the annual fish catch, right? So you would need a fleet of ships maybe, you know, 70 times more ships to just get kelp out of the ocean, which, you know, gives you a sense of the scale, right? And that's only one gigaton of CO2 from the ocean. And if you think, you know, that, that maybe only removes 40% from the atmosphere, then, you know, you need, you know, whatever 70 divided by 0.4 is, um, that amount of, of fish, fishing boats and resources. So it's, it's not, you know, as long as we're releasing CO2 at a, at a rate of whatever, 38 gigatons of CO2 to a year, you know, we're not going to be able to keep up with that, you know, with the, that emission. So that's why I think, you know, it's much easier if we focus on emission reduction. But in terms of devoting resources, I, I think we need to do research on CDR because um, even after we get to net zero in, in terms of emissions, we still need to remove some CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's where CDR will come in. Thank you, David. That was actually kind of mind blowing for me when you walked through those numbers and just the the scale of it. I mean, I know the ocean is vast, but still, it's it's sort of hard to even envision. Um, all right, last question for you both. Uh, a coalition of companies led by Stripe recently announced, you know, nearly a billion dollars of commitment to buying carbon removals. Obviously, the IPCC report on mitigation from April said that CDR will be needed to meet climate goals to David's point of removing legacy emissions. 
So, and on one of my earlier shows, the Noya CEO, Josh Santos, said that many companies haven't gone public yet, but are looking at CDR plans. So it certainly seems like CDR is growing in the consciousness of the corporate community and the policymakers. What recommendations would you give to a company or you know, the government that wants to think about net zero with CDR, particularly the types of guardrails that you'd wanna be putting around ocean CDR um, to ensure that they do not become extractive like other industries have in the past? And so I will start with uh, Shannon on this one and then end with you, David. Sure, um, I'd say for, for companies, um, continue to try to get researchers and maybe like talking about parochial interests here, but get researchers, continue to work with folks on your team and um, to help kind of work with these issues of if MRV and understanding some of the ecological risks and, and buying down some of that risk. Um, I think folks like um, Ocean Visions that you've discussed on the, the podcast before are kind of good types of organizations and models of, of how you can kind of create those networks so that the, the research and, and the, the kind of progress on the ground is, is trying to keep pace with each other. Um, and I think that builds that kind of credibility and, and, and demonstration that you can actually put up what you say you, you want to do is going to help your bottom line as a company too, right? So I'd say that for companies and for investors looking at which kind of companies to support, that's something that I would love to continue to see growth on. Um, for governments, um, likewise, kind of, um, I think, kind of showing up for um, for, for what you wanna see also in terms of kind of some of the justice issues of that, making sure that even as kind of standards on how you do some of these activities are developed, that you're kind of leaning on your activities or your kind of collaboration with different international structures to make sure that the standards of how you're working in different places are, are common enough such that you don't have companies that wind up kind of just shopping around for who lets them do kind of the most without understanding the kind of full impacts of that. Um, I think that's a really important thing and in, in trying to, you know, I would, of course, I think a lot about justice impacts of things and kind of, you know, again, looking through some of the, the proposals that I've seen, a lot of the work is is being proposed to be done in places in the world that have contributed historically the least to um, carbon emissions, but could bear the brunt of the impacts or are already bearing many of the impacts, let's be clear. And, you know, I think, again, thinking about and avoiding repeating mistakes of the past, now is the time while these projects and these companies are getting developed to make sure that folks in these countries that the work is being kind of based out of, that they're also benefiting financially from the growth in this area. That I think is so, so important and also so tricky to try to kind of regulate. But I think that, um, you know, if you're talking about government matching schemes, for example, if, if governments are providing grants to different organizations that are doing work, matching private funding, put the requirements kind of for those types of good actions that we want to see both from a ecological best practice and all environmental best practice, but also a community and sociological kind of best practice standards 
um, put those, write those requirements into the grants. And I think you're starting to see that um, DOE and, and other actors have those kind of things that are, are in place for different types of activities. And the ocean, as ocean CDR is growing, I think you should have that um, in place as well. Thanks, Shannon. David, you have the last word. Okay, I, I think that was great from Shannon. I, I don't have much to add to that, except that I, I think, um, you know, we, we need some sort of carbon market, right? Or, or you know, there needs to be a carbon tax or something to, you know, speaking from the point of view of what government should do. Um, otherwise, you know, how, how do you incentivize people to pay for these things? Um, and certainly, I think we need to learn from the past. You know, you're talking about how to not make it become an extractive industry. So we, we, you know, again, this is not the job of a scientist, right? There, there are people who specialize in these things. You know, we need to look at what mistakes were made in the past and and make sure that we avoid making those mistakes upfront. Um, but I, I want to push back on the phrasing of the question of, you know, how would you, what recommendation would you give a company that wants to achieve net zero with CDR? There is no achieving net zero without eliminating fossil fuels, period, right? CDR is not there to allow us to achieve net zero. And I think that's really important. Fair enough, David. Fair enough. Good point. Uh, and I, I agree. You have to, you have to figure out how, what to do with fossil fuels first and foremost. Um, with that, thank you both for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation and how um, well you broke down a super complex topic into a very understandable um, conversation. And I hope you both have a wonderful weekend. So thank you both for joining. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. Carbon removal.